Good morning, ladies. It always seems kind of forced when she's starting that thing back there, and then I wait for her to start it, and then I say good morning. But um, how are y'all doing this morning? It's snowing. Yay. Who knew it was going to do that? Is it still? I think it stopped. So we got our tenth of an inch, as they were telling us we would get. Do you have any questions this morning over all this material you read this week? I know there are some about the Syrophoenician woman. I didn't come up with that. That's what the scholars call her. And I will do my best to cover that. You may still have questions. I know I do. So, yes. That's the dog woman, yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I am going to go over that. And I'll try to rush to it so that we can spend as much time on that as possible because I know that's what everybody's thinking. But any other questions? Yes, Cindy. Yeah, and I'm not going to cover that. So when, when Jesus specifically refers to the Pharisees as this generation, uh, in the Old Testament, that is what God calls the wandering, disobedient Israelites very often. This, this, he also calls them frequently, you stiff-necked people. Uh, so, so this generation is, and then he names all the bad things about them. So, so essentially, he's equating them with the wandering, disobedient Israelites. Good question. See, I don't answer all of them. So if you're sitting there going, oh, she's just going to answer it. She's just going to say, I'll cover that. But that, not necessarily. So any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for today and for your word and for the beauty of these passages and even the parts that make us kind of wonder and question and what's going on here. Father, um, are your revealed word to us. And so, Father, please reveal it to us today. Help us to understand it and not only take it into our minds and our hearts, but, Father, help us to live that out in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're coming up, believe it or not, to the midpoint of Mark. Uh, We're almost halfway through Mark. And from the beginning of Mark until where we ended this week in 826, we have repeatedly seen the disciples' inability to understand who Jesus is. Over and over, they just don't get it. They ask, who is this guy, uh, after he stills the storm in chapter 4, but then they're constantly amazed and sometimes terrified every time he does something. You know, he, he performs a miracle or does something amazing. Uh, and and it, they're surprised by that. I don't know how often you can have somebody do something and then just, it's like, it would be like my family being surprised every night I cook them a good meal. I've done it for years now. You're surprised that this is good. You know, I mean, they're just, they're just like, whoa, she can cook. Yes. Uh, but they are. And it's not for lack of Jesus telling them, because in everything he has done and in everything he says, he has been proclaiming that he is Messiah, the Son of God, both in his words and in his actions. So we come to this midpoint of of the gospel, and and you'll read this. This is uh, the first thing you're going to read about this week. In chapter 8, verse 29, uh, Peter is going to profess 
who Jesus is. All of a sudden, it's like, whoa, dude, how'd you get the right answer? You know, you didn't study all semester. It's the toughest question on the test, and you got it right, because they're walking along, and Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they're like, oh, Elijah? John the Baptist? We don't know. And then he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, because I love Peter, jumps up and says, you are the Christ. And this is like, good answer. And so that profession of, of, of Peter, and, and in other Gospels, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But that profession of Peter, that you are Messiah, that's the climax and the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. But they're still going to have vision issues. They're still going to have difficulty understanding. It's going to turn, and, and almost immediately, it's going to turn to, what do you mean you're going to die? That can't be right. I mean, their vision issues are going to go from who are you to what does that mean, that you are Messiah. Uh, it's almost like, or it is like, and we'll talk about this later, the blind man at the, at the final miracle that we read this week, who was healed in stages, their vision of who Jesus is, their understanding of who Jesus is, is going to come about in stages until finally after the resurrection, they're going to go, oh, that's what he was talking about. Now I get it. So that's, uh, that's where we're headed in this coming week. So the first thing that happens in, in these passages that we read for this week is the feeding of the 5,000, which would have been way more than 5,000 because it was 5,000 men. So it didn't even count the women and children. The feeding of the 4,000 was 4,000 people, the Greek tells us. So the total was, well, that's just a little aside, and why my brain hangs on to stuff like that, I have no idea. But here's where we begin with this miracle. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So just after they've come back from their mission, remember we heard about that last week, just after they come back from their mission, uh, it says this, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he, Jesus, said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So these few verses talk about the need for rest. Sometime after the disciples came back from their mission, the pressure of constant ministry took its toll. So Jesus calls the disciples and tells them to come away with him to rest. Now I want to give you a couple important points about this rest. First of all, it's to a quiet place. Sometimes I think that I can rest amidst the busyness of my life. I'm just going to take a little rest here and watch this TV show. That is not rest. Not true rest. It may be not fixing dinner or running the vacuum or something like that, but it's, it's not true rest. Secondly, and more importantly, it is with Jesus. True rest, which by the way is an important promise in the Old Testament that God will give us rest. Eternal rest. True rest is with Jesus. Spa time with girlfriends is fun. Spending some alone time with your hubster is great. But true rest comes only from God through Jesus Christ. So they try to rest. Uh, how many of you with young children 
can attest to this, they try to rest. It doesn't work out the way they thought it would. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. That could also be translated, he began teaching them at length. He began teaching them for a long time. So can you, can you relate to that? They think they're going to rest, but something else comes and, and happens instead. Jeff and I often say to each other, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Oftentimes our best laid plans have to be set aside. And a swarm of fans come to greet him like he's some sort of, you know, teen idol. He's got these, these adoring fans that follow him wherever he goes. Don't miss, though, Jesus' reaction to this. He has compassion on them. He is moved by this display of, of ardor toward him. Um, now, I don't know about you, but this is decidedly not how I react when, I, uh, when rest time <laughs> is interrupted. My youngest son, even at 15, has not figured this out. It just happened a month ago. I'm taking a rest. I'm asleep on the couch, and I get, Mom? And he says something like, Remember, you got to wash my uniform. I'm like, really? Really? This is what you've wakened me to do? You, you know how to run the washing machine. Go wash your uniform. Or let me just jump up from my rest. Oh, yes, sir, let me do this for you. I did not have compassion on my son and his uniform. But once again, in this instance, Jesus proves himself to be interruptible because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. That statement, I mean, it sounds like a really sweet statement to us, doesn't it? They're sheep without a shepherd. It's a real implied challenge to the leadership of Israel. Because you see, they had plenty of leaders. They had droves of priests and, and religious leaders and scribes and teachers of the law, but they had no true shepherds. Their leaders were not doing what they were supposed to be doing, caring for the sheep. This is how David Garland puts it. He says, Jesus did not seem to care how big the temple stones were, how big its budget was, or how many showed up for prayers and sacrifices. All he cared about were the results of all this religiosity. What he saw were spiritually and physically hungry people wrapped up in all sorts of religious red tape. They were spiritually starved as well as materially impoverished, and nobody seemed to care. He would see the same things today. Jesus recognizes both needs and both needs and moves to correct them. So Jesus is, is, is moved and he sees these sheep without a shepherd and he begins to teach them. Now, one of the points that, that David Garland makes, which I think is a really great point, is the difference between Jesus and the religious leaders is the difference between a shepherd and a mutton farmer is what he calls them. Because shepherding was hard work. We kind of glorify it, Psalm 23 and all that, and he leads me beside still waters. Look, sheep are dumb, and, and they're stubborn as heck, and they won't even figure out how to eat unless you help them. And so being a shepherd, and they're constantly being attacked, they're cute as all get out, but I'm telling you right now, they can't defend. What defense does a sheep have? I'm cute. You know, no, he's just meat to a wolf. And so a shepherd has to 
constantly fend off those things and help the, and you're out in the open and it's, it's wilderness territory. Shepherding was hard work. But a mutton farmer just builds a fence and says, have at it, take care of yourselves. We don't have a fenced backyard and I'm constantly worried that, that some big dog, because there's a Rottweiler that lives down the street, no, a Doberman. I can never tell the difference. It's one or the other. It's a big dog, and it walks its woman. You know what I'm saying? You know, it, and so I am constantly watching Barkley when he goes out. Unfortunately, he doesn't want to wander very far. If we had a fence back there, I could just let him out. And, and the difference between a shepherd and a mutton farmer is that you have that fence. And what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing was they were putting up fence after fence after fence of rules trying to control the sheep and keep them in. They didn't care about them. They just didn't want them to cause them any problems. Just do what we say and everything will go well. I might have said that a time or two uh, to my children. And that's the difference between Jesus saying, look, they're, they're sheep without a shepherd. They've got nobody to take care of them, physically or spiritually. So he begins teaching. And once again, Mark is not concerned at all to tell us what Jesus taught. He just wants them, he just, he just wants us to know that Jesus taught and what he did instead. So where did this take place? Uh, it took place in the hill country right up here. So sort of north of Capernaum and west of Bethsaida. How do I know that? Well, I read commentaries for one thing, but it's also uh, where Luke locates the miracle. And the feeding... Uh, I'm not going to read through all this, but in the feeding, after Jesus has been teaching a while, the disciples make what they believe to be a completely reasonable request of Jesus. Don't you think y'all ought to let these people go so they can go get some food? That sounds reasonable to me because I grew up in a family that talks about what are we going to have for dinner while we are eating lunch, okay? What's, what's for dinner? So that sounded reasonable enough to them, and Jesus gives them this answer. You feed them. They're like, we, where are we going to get the money for that? Holy cow, we can't feed these people. The disciples don't get it. If Jesus can calm a storm, he can feed a crowd. They are concentrating on what they lack rather than what, or more importantly, who they have. Now, the miracle itself has been explained away by all kinds of scholars. It was this miracle of sharing where everybody took out their own food and they all shared it with one another so that there was, that was not it. Did you read the part about how, oh, Jesus is leaving, let's follow him. They didn't stop to pack lunch. And, and, the, and the, the, the disciples never would have said, let's let them go get food in the surrounding towns if they all had food. This was a miracle of Jesus creating something out of almost nothing, which is, yet again, something only God can do. Who is this guy? But to me, this is the most important application we need to take from this. Note this. The disciples' inability to understand what is going on and what Jesus is asking them does not prevent them from acting on Jesus' commands. This is important because if we wait until we understand everything that God is asking us to do, we will miss out on a lot of what he has for us. Dr. Edwards says this, to their minds it is an unreasonable if not impossible command. 
As is the case with all of the Lord's commands, however, they will in the end do exactly what he says, although they cannot imagine how. That right there, ladies, is a perfect description of life with Jesus. We are to obey even when we don't understand or think what he's asking is impossible. And he is likely to call us to something that is more than we can handle. Ah, but it's not more than he can handle. Every year except one, I have gone to Royal Family Kids Camp thinking, I am completely incapable of this. The one year I didn't was the first year because I didn't know what I was getting into. I can handle this. Uh, and I got there, I was like, no, I can't. Guys, there's no way. I mean, if you, if you have not been to camp, you can't begin to understand how draining it is physically and emotionally and spiritually and yet exhilarating at the same time. I have seen 19-year-old kids go, seriously, dude, I can't handle this. Because it is that drink. I'm going to be 54 years old on Sunday. I'm not in good shape. I'm swimming, though. So, But how do I handle this? It's because I don't handle it. God does it. And every year he asks me to go back. And every year I do, knowing if you don't show up, I'm toast. And when God calls us to that thing that we go, you know, this can't be God because I can't do that, it probably is God. And he can do it. What a beautiful picture of discipleship. This feeding reminds us of a number of Old Testament themes. I wish we, in stories, I wish we could get into it. But it's also, it, it reminds us of Moses and the Israelites where, where Moses says, how am I going to take care of all these people? How am I going to feed all these people? God, I love it when God gets sarcastic. Says to him, is the Lord's arm too short? I think not. And God provides manna in a desert. Um, so, and even Jesus breaking them up into, into groups, that's exactly what Moses did, breaking them up into groups and companies. Uh, Psalm 23, we don't have time for this, but check it out sometime. Read through Psalm 23 and go, oh, I see a lot of the same themes there. Elisha whose servant said, you cannot feed all these prophets with 20 loaves of bread. And Elisha said, just do what I'm telling you to do. And he did feed, God did feed all those prophets with 20 loaves of bread. Well, um, after this is over, it says immediately, Jesus tells, made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them, him to Bethsaida. He did, they didn't end up in Bethsaida. I probably won't have time to explain that, but they probably just got blown off course by the wind. Uh, while he dis or Jesus changed, you know, Jesus said, you know what, we're not supposed to go to Bethsaida. We're supposed to go to Gennesaret or wherever. While he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Late that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all they all saw him, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So uh, immediately it tells us, and Mark doesn't tell us why he sends the disciples off and, and slips away, um, but John does. 
Because John, as John tells us in John 6, that the crowd uh, wanted to seize Jesus and make him king by force. They wanted him to be a different kind of Messiah than he actually was. One who would defeat the Romans for them. And since the disciples probably would have dug that idea, I think he was like, you guys get out of here before I deal with this. Go, 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 go. And then he slipped away on the mountainside to pray. And in in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus is, I'm sure he prayed more than this, but he was recorded as praying at times when he was facing temptation or trial. And Jesus knows he must flee Man, from man's desire to make him the wrong kind of king, the wrong kind of Messiah, and so he does. Now, I want to make three quick points about this, uh, about this miracle because I think these are very po- important, and I read this passage because I think it's a really important passage. First, it says that Jesus was about to pass by. Jesus was passing by. What is that all about? That just is kind of crazy. There's some... Um, there's some theologians that say he was just kind of playing with them, you know, like he was being, he was teasing them and walking on the water. like, dude, look at me, I'm walking on the water. That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? And, and I don't think that's what it is. In fact, there's strong ties to the Old Testament here. And, and in the Old Testament, it is recorded several places using the exact same language in the Greek Old Testament that God passes by. And when God passes by, he is displaying something of his glory. He is revealing who he is. You remember um, on the mountain when, when Moses begged God, let me see your face. And, and, and God says, you can't see my face, but I will pass by you. And, and I will let you see my back and you will see something of my glory. You remember Elijah when God said, go up to the mountaintop and I will pass by. And the wind comes and, and all these things come and it's not God and it's not God. But when God passes by, it's in a still, small voice. Probably the most uh, important reference to God passing by comes in Job 9 where it says he alone God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed miracles that cannot be counted when he passes me I cannot see him when he passes by it literally says I cannot perceive him So treading on the waves is something, again, that only God can do. And when God passed by on the waves, Job says he was invisible. I couldn't see him. But in Jesus, God is made visible. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. And Jesus is intending to reveal himself to his disciples in this epiphany, in this revelation of God, but in their fear, they don't get it. And then Jesus says something very important. In the NIV, it says that Jesus said, it is I. Actually, the Greek is ego I me, which means I am. Uh, Even with his words, Jesus is revealing who he is to his disciples. Because I am is the name that God gave for himself to Moses. When Moses was arguing with God and said, well, what's your name? Who should I tell them is sending me? God said, tell them, ego I me. Tell them, I am sent you. 
So Jesus is saying much, much more than, hey, don't worry, I'm here. Like we might say to a child who is crying, but even when we do that, what do we say to our child? We don't say, don't worry, I'm here. We say, mommy's here. We identify who we are. And Jesus is identifying who he is. He is revealing who he is. And he is saying, don't be afraid. I am. I am God incarnate. Uh, This is what David Garland says. He says, "God God cannot be fully seen, but Jesus can. The one who comes to them on the sea is not simply the successor to Moses who fills baskets with bread in the desert. Only God can walk on the sea. And Jesus' greeting is not a simple, a simply a cheery hello to assuage the disciples' fears. He greets them with the divine formula of self-revelation. I am. Here is the answer to the disciples' question in 441. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This person is the God who needs only say, I am. But that answer sails by the disciples. Well, then in in verses 53 through 56, we have this summary of Jesus' ministry uh, again around the lake. And I don't want to, you can get the answer key afterward. I'm only going to say one thing about this. And that is the very last word of this says, and all who touched it were healed. That could also be translated, that word also means saved. And that is exactly what Jesus does when he saves us, isn't it? He also heals us. Well, then we're going to go on and have a confrontation with the Pharisees about washing of hands. Um, And uh, I'm not going to read this, but the basic complaint of the Pharisees was this. Jesus, your guys eat with unclean hands. Now, unclean in this case does not mean dirty. It doesn't mean they didn't wash for dinner. Uh, It has nothing to do with hygiene. Unclean means unacceptable, and specifically unacceptable to God. It means unholy. So the disciples, and by association probably Jesus, did not adhere to the ceremonial washings that were prescribed by the Pharisees. Here's the thing. No such rules are found in the Old Testament. The Torah does not anywhere tell us, tell anybody, that the the public needs to wash their hands ceremonially and their pots and their cups and their whatever. It's good hygiene. Just that has nothing to do with faith in God. It developed as oral tradition over time. Jesus' response to this In verses 6 through 8, he gives them several responses. The first thing he says is, you guys are hypocrites. And he quotes Isaiah in doing so. He says, you're doing all the right things, or you're you're cleaning yourself on the outside, while your hearts are far from God. Your hands may be holy, but your hearts are unholy. Your hands may be clean, but your hearts are unclean. Secondly, he tells them, you're not worshiping God or obeying his commands. You're just following human tradition. And then he gives Corbin as an example. And and Corbin was sort of like, again, oral tradition. This isn't commanded. Uh, Well, actually, this may be uh, talked about in the Old Testament. But but it's, it's something like deferred giving. Like money could be designated for uh 
being given, in this case, to the temple upon one's death. When, when uh, my first trip to Zambia, I never really did tell my mother this story. We were stopped at a checkpoint that's right by the Congo that we're always stopped at. And uh, we had truckloads of money. Because the trip before, they had wired money and it didn't come. So John both wired money and took the same amount of money. So we had like twice as much money as we needed. And John had a conversation the night before we left with Jonathan, Jonathan Musanda about all this money. And Jonathan said to him, God thing, if anybody tells you, tries to extort money from you, you need to tell them you don't have any money. And John's like, I can't do that. That's lying. And he said, no, in our country, if that money is designated to something else, you don't have to do anything with that money because that money's supposed to go back to Brookside Church. It's, it's as if you don't have it. That's Corbin. We got pulled over. John got detained for a long time and questioned, and they were trying to extort money from him. And John kept saying, I don't have any money. I don't have any money. I don't have any money. And finally, they released us. Um, that's Corbin. Corbin says, hey, look, when I die, this is going to the temple. So I don't have any money for you, mom and dad. Uh, so it enabled a person to benefit from the money and not have to use it for, say, helping an aging parent. And here's the deal. Taking care of one's parents is part of what it means to honor them. That would be commandment four. That would definitely be in uh, the Torah. Uh, and so... Jesus' point is that they, the, the, the Pharisees, ignore what God has commanded in order to follow what God has not commanded. And this is their regular practice. At the end it says, and you do many things like that. That's in the present tense. So he's saying you do this kind of thing all the time. This is just one example. And then in verses uh, 14 through 23, Jesus gives this, this private example uh, to both to the people and to his, uh, his disciples, and I wish I had more time for this, but basically in his response, Jesus rejects the Pharisees. He rejects their entire approach to God's law. The Pharisees are concerned with surface things. God is concerned with the heart. Laws don't make us holy. Laws can't make us holy any more than posting a 55 mile an hour speed limit can force us to go 55 miles an hour. It is the evil thoughts and actions that leak out of our lives that make us unholy. And only God can cleanse our hearts and make us holy. One more point on this. Jesus is not condemning here all tradition. Only that which is not in line with God's revealed word in Scripture. Or those traditions that become more important to us than God's truth, than God's word. And when we begin to hold more tightly to tradition than we do to truth, well then, Houston, we've got a problem. Years ago, and I want to make this clear, this wasn't Avery Church, this wasn't Avery Church. Years ago, my parents were involved in a church, my dad was on the session, a Presbyterian church. And the, the session was in an uproar because the high school teacher was not teaching Presbyterian material. So my dad said, I've got this. He went to my sister who was in the class and said, hey, is Gary using Presbyterian material? And this was my sister's answer. He's using the Bible. Is that Presbyterian? So, and, and there, this, this, one, this one guy had an argument I heard about uh, when, when the, the theologian kept giving him scriptural reason after scriptural reason about why he was teaching what he was teaching, the guy said, well, that may be the Bible, but it's not Baptist. Okay, when we get there, 
we're leaning on tradition and not on God's word. Well, let's see what we can do with this, this story here. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. This is Gentile territory. That's the first thing you need to know. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. I was going to show you a map that this is in Gentile territory. You can look that up um, on your... um, on your map, in your, in your curriculum. Um, but I will tell you that for the Messiah to have such an itinerary to go and preach to Gentiles and be in Gentile territory would have been unconceivable to the Jews. Messiah would never do that. It would be scandalous. So Tyre, the people of Tyre, were very wealthy enemies of Israel. While Galilee was impoverished, in some sense, they were taking the bread of the Jews. The um, example that was given in one of my commentaries was that this would be like a Brahmin, uh, the highest caste of India, driving up in his limousine to Mother Teresa's mission and asking her to leave her mission to come pray for his child. Uh, so you, this, this, was a, this was a very... Um, different sort of situation that Jesus found himself in. And the woman herself, of all those people who have approached Jesus in Mark, she probably had the most against her. First of all, she was a woman. That wasn't a good thing in Jesus' day. She was a Gentile pagan from hated territory. Dr. Edwards says even Levi, the tax collector, must have raised his eyebrows at this woman. She is also desperate. And she falls on her face before Jesus, as others have done in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' answer to her is um, a somewhat muted insult. I say somewhat muted because the word used for dog is the word for a little house pet. It's not the word for a street mongrel. So think Barkley, not the Rottweiler, Doberman, whatever it is that lives down the street. The other thing that that mutes it is this word first. He doesn't say, you ain't never going to get bread. He says, first, feed Israel. My mission is to Israel. And then uh, you will be fed. So that does give some hope. Salvation will come to the Gentiles in time. But the woman's response here is really key. It is a humble response response. She does not say, what do you mean I'm a dog? What do you mean you won't give it to me? I'm at least as deserving as these other people you've healed. She doesn't come with pride. She comes with humility and she accepts that she does not deserve as a Gentile pagan what Israel receives from Jesus. But she's not asking for a full meal, is she? She just wants some little crumbs for a little dog. 
Secondly, she knows, she understands that she cannot insist on God's mercy toward her. She is deferential. She is humble before Jesus. Thirdly, her answer reveals that she understands more about Jesus and his mission than his disciples do, than these guys that have been following him around for years. Her answer is an answer of faith. Her answer is the answer of a true disciple. And Jesus says as much. And healing, salvation, comes to the Gentiles. Those who have sincere faith will receive the bread of life, no matter what their sex, their race, their background, or their socioeconomic status. Well, we go from here to another Gentile... um, There we go. Another Gentile healing and Gentile area of Decapolis. Um, And this is probably near where Legion was healed, which is interesting because it it likely shows the success when Jesus says, go and tell people what the Lord has done for you. Apparently he did because he gets to Decapolis and they come running. They know who he is. The thing I want to point out here is two confessions at the end that are true about Jesus that are true only of God. The first is, he has done everything well. And that is what the Old Testament says about God and his creation. And secondly, they say, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, which over and over the Old Testament tells us is something only God can do. Again, who is this guy? Well, In uh, the first part of chapter 8, we have another... Whoa, okay. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, In the first part of chapter 8, we have another feeding, and there are a lot of similarities here. There's one big difference. That first feeding was in Jewish territory. This second feeding is in Gentile territory, and it comes on the heels of two Gentile healings. So Jesus is now teaching and miraculously feeding Gentiles, just as he did for the Jews in Galilee. Standing on this side of history, we don't understand the enormity of that. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's unthinkable in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament. They just didn't get it. Um, It's unthinkable to the Jews of Jesus' day. The Gentiles were ostracized by the Jews. They were unclean. It was an uncleanness that could be transmitted to other people. But Jesus is telling us in Mark that all who come in faith will be be called God's children. And at the end here where it says he sent them away, um, uh, the people are eight and satisfied. Uh, Well, where does it say he sent them away? Anyway. It does. It does. Just trust me, it does. That word can mean to liberate. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. Um, in the next part, it talks about the, the, the Pharisees coming to him and demanding a sign. And you could, on one hand, you could go, well, why don't you just heal somebody? So they'll leave you alone. But the point here is the kind of sign they're asking for. They're asking for a sign from heaven. That is different than asking for a sign from God. They do not mean a sign from God. They do not mean a miracle 
or at least they mean a specific kind of miracle. Because the, 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 to say to ask for a sign from God is based on the Old Testament. So this is a specific kind of sign. It is an apocalyptic phenomena to prove he is Messiah. It is those things that, that the Old Testament said would attend Messiah, like darkening the sun or the moon, something that makes people go, ha, ah, the world's about to end. Um, and, and so what they want Jesus to do is to give them a signal that he is Messiah and he's going to come down on the Romans and, and take care of everything. Jesus will have none of it. They have been given plenty of proof. Jesus is not some wind-up toy Messiah that's going to perform for them. Faith based on miraculous proofs is not faith at all. So they, they get in the boat again, and here, I mean, this is almost funny, really. In fact, I think it is funny. I think it's comic relief. And Jesus, after this, this interlude with the Pharisees, says to them, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Um, now, in Jesus' time, yeast or leaven often symbolized, it was used as a metaphor for corruption. And bread was made differently back then. We just go to the store and buy some yeast, and we don't think of the yeast as becoming poisonous. Remember friendship bread? Okay, it was more like that. You would take a little bit of the batch and you'd let it just keep fermenting and fermenting and fermenting and you'd make the next batch with it. But that can become literally poisonous. It can become tainted. And then it infects the whole new loaf with that poison. So Jesus is warning the disciples to not be infected with the obstinate unbelief of the Pharisees and Herod, which resulted in their hostility toward Jesus. <laughs> But there's comic relief here because they're like, why is he saying this? It's because we don't have bread, isn't it? <laughs> oh, you should have bought bread. Yeah, you're right, Jesus. They don't realize that they have the ultimate bread-making machine right there in the boat with them. He's not talking about bread. He can do the bread thing. But they just don't get it. And honestly, they can't yet. Well, lastly, we end with this healing that was weird, wasn't it? It was like, why didn't he just heal them? Why is it in stages? I've always wondered that. This is, a, this is an acted out parable. Notice where it falls on the heels. It falls on the heels of another uh, situation where the disciples did not understand what was going on. And uh, another story of their lack of understanding. And this healing acts out what is going on with the disciples. Their understanding will come in stages. After the resurrection, they will see clearly. By the way, we're going to see acted out parables again um, in probably the part of Mark even more, if you can believe this, than the Syrophoenician woman, the part of Mark that has made me gone, what is going on with this? I'll just give you a little hint. It's when he curses the dog on fig tree. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. But for, for our, to end today and to apply this, I want to go back to this, this woman uh, the Syrophoenician woman, because this story offends us, or at least it does me, or at least it did me. What's, what's he doing? Why is he being so mean to her? He wasn't mean to Legion. Why is he being mean to her? We don't like to hear Jesus call a woman a dog. He's called the, the Pharisees a lot worse. <laughs> that doesn't bother us, though, because we don't like them. And they're men. So, you know, and they deserved it. But she didn't. 
She didn't deserve this treatment. Why? Why do we react that way? In our, in our I'm okay, you're okay world, and most of you don't remember that book, you know, the truth is, I'm not okay, and neither are you. But in our I'm okay, you're okay world, we think everybody, nobody, nobody should be offended, and nobody should be mistreated or, or be, 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 you know, called something bad ever. And, and in that world, it's hard for us to understand this. What causes us to react this way, actually, is pride. I don't deserve that. She doesn't deserve that. Why would you do that? Even if it's a cute little dog. The woman didn't react that way, did she? She reacted with complete humility, not pride. She understood that she did not deserve healing for her daughter. She knew she was not worthy of Jesus. And here's the truth, ladies. We aren't worthy either. We do not deserve the salvation that Jesus offers us. That's what makes it scandalous grace. But he gives it to us anyway. Don't let pride get in the way of the wonder of that. Let it sink in. For when we become proud, we refuse to fall on our faces before Jesus as she did in our hour of desperation. And instead, we decide that we will go about this ourselves with self-sufficiency. There's no such thing. It's truly only self-inefficiency. We need Jesus. But ladies, we are unworthy of Jesus. And yet, he still died for us in our place. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm a wretch. I know I'm a wretch. And yet you still died. Father, the, the words of beneath the cross of Jesus have been echoing in my brain these last few days as I prepared to teach. And so I just pray them back to you. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eyes can, at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Father, we are unworthy, but you still loved us so much to send your son to die for us. Thank you. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, ladies.